0: happy new year. <clears throat> you guys ready for a new new year? There you go. Some of you kind of awake. Um, so I, I really am. Our Christmas vacation, me and my wife's, was the craziest one I've ever had, and not in a good way, like in a bad way. Like we went up to Flagstaff, and that night got snowed in, had to drive back on the craziest roads I've ever been on, in I-17 with ice, it was like Mad Max, like people, like explosions sliding off the roads, And then we go, wow, we didn't even have any time together as a couple. Well, at least we're going on vacation in California. Went to California the next day and went to Disneyland. It was so packed, guys. The entire day we were on four rides. Yes, I know. So next day we go, we're we're just going to leave. We'll just have fun in California, hang in at her sister's house. Next morning we go for a jog. I come back home and start throwing up. And then the next morning Lexi gets sick. And finally we just give up and just come home. So I'm ready for a new year, and uh, (laughs) what I really like about New Year's is you kind of have this fun space where you can kind of just imagine what the New Year's going to be like, however you want. You kind of can project into the future, like, oh, this year will be like this, this year will be like this, because it's kind of like a new world, and new worlds, in a sense, kind of give you a chance to have a new, fresh perspective. And so here's your New Year's story of the year. Um, So about three years ago, I went to China for the first time with redemption. Now, I'd never been there, and I heard that it's pretty different culturally in a lot of ways. And some of the things that people had warned me about, I was ready for. Some things weren't, I was not ready for. So day one, I get out of the hotel, and I walk outside because I'm like, morning, I want to be out there and see the city and people moving in the streets. And so I walk outside, and as soon as I get out there, there's this little, little kid. He's Probably like two, three, toddler I don't know what that category is. But so he walks by, and I notice he's wearing something I've never seen on a baby in America. One, he's not wearing a diaper. Two, he's wearing a onesie with uh, Mickey Mouse all over it. But the back end of it has like this cut all the way down, and he has no diaper. So he looks at me, he walks by, smiles, looks at me, grandma's following along, and the baby just squats down and does what babies do best right in the middle of the street, in the middle of like a crowd of people. And so I was like, good morning, China. And was like, I didn't know what to do. I was like really confused. And apparently it's a very common practice in China. Diapers are incredibly expensive. They're not super hygienic, to be honest, because your baby's just sitting around in them for them in China. And so they, they have these onesies. And Grandma comes along, cleans up the baby, good to go, walking away. Here's the point. I could have sat there as an American and gone, shame on you, Grandma. Did you see this little boy? Going to the bathroom in the street? That's not okay. Right, guys? And I would have looked around and nobody would have been agreeing with me because I'm the only American standing there and a group of Chinese people. New worlds demand that you have a new perspective. And when we look forward into the new year, I wanted to give you guys something, when I thought about what to put together, a little bit more encouraging than just, it's a new year, fresh, something new could happen. Because as Christians, we live in a new world. And it does demand we have a new perspective. Because of Christ Jesus, we live in a brand new world. And I think that is at the heart of what we're going to go through today, which is in 2 Corinthians. So grab a Bible, open up to 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 16 is where we're going to start. Now, if you don't have a Bible, raise your hand. We got some... Bible messengers coming along. They're going to pass out their Bibles. And so if you don't have a Bible, just keep that Bible. That's our gift to you. Write your name on it. That's for you to learn about God and his story of the world. All right, so pick up with me in verse 16. From now on, therefore, we regard no one according to the flesh, even though we once regarded Christ according to the flesh, we regard him thus no longer. Okay, so what's the from now on, therefore? What's the story? So here's the, here's the background story. Second Corinthians is kind of like a after the breakup, put everything back together relationship letter. Paul's writing to a church in Corinth. He started it. And when he started it with his preaching, everything started off good, but then he continued on to other churches. But then he got word that things were kind of going crazy in Corinth. People were living in no way in step with the gospel. This was like the Vegas of churches in the ancient world. And so their lives are just not matching what the gospel teaches. And so Paul writes them a letter and says, hey, you can't live this way. That's 1 Corinthians. They get the letter, and like most of us, when someone says, hey, you're wrong, and you're doing something wrong, we either have the response of, ah, you're right, or we go, what do you know? And that's what happened in the church. Some people were like, gosh, you're right. And then some people started creating a lot of division because what they did is they looked at Paul and they go, wait a minute, you're poor. You get beat up all the time when you preach the gospel. You get thrown in jail all the time. And honestly, you're not the greatest Greek order public speaker. You just kind of fumble about and talk about the cross all the time. So I mean, so they started lumping up this case against Paul and saying, you know, we don't really need to follow you. And so he just comes straight to their doorstep. Hey, I heard what you were saying about me. And so now they have to deal with Paul. And by the grace of God, the church at Corinth gets convicted and realizes we were wrong and they want to make everything fixed. And so Paul has to continue on and leave, and so he writes this letter back to Corinth, and basically he's saying, I want to make sure you and I are okay. Because you guys, you guys are my letter of approval. Like your heart, the way God is working in you, you are the proof that my ministry means something. But I want to make sure that you guys, the problem that happened with you in the beginning, can get corrected. Which was, Corinth was in a sense looking at the world with old eyes. Meaning, an old perspective. They were like me in China, but they were just running around going, this is ridiculous. This doesn't make sense. And so Paul's going, okay, you need a new perspective, but how I'm going to do it for you is I'm going to tell you what God has done, how he did it, and now who you have to be. And that's where we're going today. We're going to go through what God has done in this new year, how he did it, and who we are to be. So, first clue that God has done something in verse 16, from now on therefore we regard no one according to the flesh. Even though we once regarded Christ according to the flesh, we regard him thus no longer. So, according to the flesh for Paul means the world's standards. Anytime you hear Paul saying flesh, he's talking about the brokenness of humanity in that it passes away. And so what he's saying is, look, I used to look at Jesus from a totally different perspective. Now, Paul you got to remember, he's a Jew. He grew up Jewish, had Old Testament chunks of it memorized. And so what he had expected for the Messiah, which was going to be the superhero king who's going to come and save Israel, who's now getting invaded by Rome, he expected the Messiah to come in, beat up the Romans, kick all the foreigners out, and then bring Israel back together as a supernation state, and then God would rule on world, and everything would be okay. And so he goes, I used to look at Jesus from that perspective, but then he did this crazy thing where he died and came back from the dead, and so I decided I probably should change my perspective. For Paul, he realizes, I can't look at Jesus with the same standards anymore. So how could I look at anybody else with the same standards anymore? How we view God will impact how we view other people. And what world we actually believe we live in is going to communicate the rest of our lives, how we live, how we treat people, and how we see things. And so for Paul, he begins with, look, if you don't realize that you have to see Christ with a new vision and you have to see other people with a new vision because a new world has come, you're going to miss everything I've been talking about and arguing with. We're going to have these problems all over again. So we need to start with what God has done, and the clue is you can't look at the world the same. And so let's take a look at what God has done. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. little note I want you guys to take a notice of. In that verse right there, from there uh, therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. Here's what it is in the Greek. I don't speak Greek, I just looked it up. Therefore, if anyone in Christ, new creation. That's it. Period. If anyone in Christ, new creation. Now, I think what they're doing in the translation is perfect. If anyone is in Christ, especially because he's talking about people, they are a new creation. But what Paul is really trying to get, and I really think we need to understand his perspective to get the bite of it, is the problem with Corinthians, the church, is they are, in a sense... had really bad vision, and they had glasses on. And if anybody doesn't have bad vision, you know if you grab somebody else's glasses to joke around, you put them on, it makes you dizzy, you can't really see anything. And so Paul's saying, look, a new world has come. Your guys' vision has been healed, but you're keeping your glasses on. And so now you're not seeing things correctly. And I think that we can only get at that if we understand that this isn't just specifically about individuals. Therefore, if anyone in Christ, the new creation has come, you are a part of that new creation. But what Paul is really trying to get them to see is a new era in world history has begun. And you are a part of it. In a sense, what Paul is trying to get them to understand is the end times have begun. And they began 2,000 years ago when Jesus got back up from the grave. And it's been that time ever since. The new creation For Paul, again, as a Jew, he had this rattling around in his brain that God has his world, and he's obsessed with it, and he loves it. And when it gets totally ruined and destroyed by sin and everything gets broken, God began to promise that he would renew it, that there would be a time where, in a sense, he would make a new creation. And I think that To get that, we can even go along with some of the Bible reading we've been having in the True Story Project. In fact, turn with me to Isaiah 65, verse 17, or look up on the screen. For behold, I create new heavens and new earth. The former things shall not be remembered to come into mind, but be glad and rejoice forever in that which I create. For behold, I create Jerusalem to be a joy, and her people to be a gladness. I will rejoice in Jerusalem, and and I will be glad in my people. No more shall be heard in it the sound of weeping and the cry of distress. No more shall there be in it an infant who lives but a few days, or an old man who does not fill out his days. For the young man shall die a hundred years old. The sinner a hundred years old shall be accursed. They shall build houses and inhabit them. They shall plant vineyards and eat their fruit. They shall not build and another inhabit. They shall not plant and another eat. For like the days of a tree shall be the days of my people. And my chosen shall long enjoy the work of their hands. They shall not labor in vain or bear children for calamity. For they shall be the offspring and the blessed of the Lord. And their descendants with them. Before I will call, they will answer. And while I am yet while they are yet speaking, I will hear the wolf and the lamb shall graze together, the lion shall eat straw like the ox, and the dust shall be the serpent's food. They shall not hurt or destroy in all my holy mountain. Paul, before Jesus had come crashing into his lifestyle, had this vision of the world in human history. God made the world. It got really messed up by sin. And every moment from that point on of human history was God's rescue plan of restoring and fixing the world. And Paul knew, as a good Jew, that someday the day of the Lord will come. God will come crashing into history, will stop history where it's at, and continue a brand new age. And what Paul is saying to the Corinth church is, that has happened already. That day is here in Jesus. And you can't see the world anymore the same. You can't look at me the same. You can't look at each other the same. You can't live the same because nothing is the same. It's a new world. It's a new world today for us. The end times have become in that Jesus reigns and rules and this world is being put back together finally. And I think it's huge that we understand where we are at in the story because where you believe you're at in the story and what world you believe you're a part of is gonna define how you live entirely. On campus at ASU, one of the things I do is I'll ask students, just random students, just start conversations, hey, what do you think, if you were to tell the story of the world to someone, what would you say? And some people, like, it's a hard question to ask for any of us, but some people are like, I don't know, but let me fumble and try to get it out. And what I've come to find that most people, most students at least, ASU in our culture, would tell the world story something along the lines of this. Who are we? Well, I'm an individual with my own freedom, choices, and decisions on what I believe I decided. Where are we? Well, I'm in a world that's for the most part pretty comfortable, progressing for our less enlightened predecessors because of science and the iPhone. What's wrong? Well, a bunch of others. I don't really understand them or know them, but they're the problem. If they could just figure it out or if we can keep them away, we'd be okay. What's the solution? Well, if we could just keep the others away and keep them out, then the rest of the world could advance through our progressive intellect and fix the world to be a more reasonable place. Our, our our world, our culture has a story. It's not the same one of the Bible. Here's the scary thing about our culture, specifically American culture. It has a place for our faith in that story. A nice place where it could sit and fit. But it's a scary place because that place is on the back burner of social life, and it's relegated to just a private belief. And so this statement falls flat. We hear it, and it, well, what do you mean? New creation has come, the end of the world has begun. That seems a little crazy. But for Paul, for the Corinthian church to live out what he is calling them to live and what God is calling them to live, and for us to live out what God is calling us to live, and live into new creation, we have to believe we actually are in a new world. That our faith is something so much more than just a personal ascension to a couple of intellectual truths. We need to understand that because of Jesus, a whole new point in history has begun. But here's the thing that I started thinking about is kind of tough. Paul says, the old is passed away, and behold, the new has come. Well, how does that work? You're going to go outside in 20 minutes, you'll realize that the old hasn't fully passed away. So how do you explain that, Paul? For Paul, his perspective was something along the lines of both ages for a moment in time where we are at right now go alongside each other at the same time. And uh, maybe this will explain it. I, uh, I got one of my favorite children's books when I was a kid called The Voyage of the Dawn Treader. And in it, one of the first stories, if you don't know anything about Narnia, well, you should get started. They get in a boat, in summary. And the king, or the prince, Caspian, is going to all the isles of Narnia that are at the far reaches of the land. And one of them, they've heard that something that is against the kingdom of Aslan is there. Slavery. So they go, and they find out it's true. There's slavery on this island, and the governor, the ruler, is wicked and has taken advantage of the people. And so they go to the ruler, and Prince Caspian says, all right, we're getting a new ruler. He's in. You're gone, and we're going to completely free all the slaves. And this is the response of the people of the wicked ruler, whose name is, by the way, Gumpus, which I think is a great name for a wicked ruler. "'As for you, my lord,' he said to Gumpus, "'I forgive you your debt for the tribute, "'but before noon tomorrow you and yours must be out of the castle, "'which is now the duke's residence. "'Look here, this is all very well,' said one of the Gumpus's secretaries, "'but suppose all the gentlemen stop play-acting "'and we do a little business. "'The question before us really is—' "'The question is,' says the duke, "'whether you and the rest of the rabble will leave without a flogging "'or with one, the choice is yours.'" So we are in that awkward stage of human history where the wicked kingdom of the past age, of darkness, sin, and death, is still on the island with a good and new and true king. And It's not leaving without a flogging. It's going to have to be forced out by Jesus. But we are in that awkward stage where there are the two kingdoms kind of right on top of each other living on the island at the same time. And so if we are not careful and we listen to the culture too much or if we're not careful and we don't listen to Paul's argument and it's bigger than just individuals, we forget and we get blinded into thinking that maybe the wicked ruler really still is in charge. No. Jesus is in charge. The new creation has come. It has come fully and new and fully and that is why we can live into this new year as followers of Christ because the end of the world has begun in a great way in that Jesus is reigner and ruler over our entire lives and over this world. Now, for Paul, he continues on because he realizes that the Corinth church needs to hear not just what God has done, bring about new creation. He needs them to hear how he's done it because that's going to transform their lives. So in the next verse, verse 18. All this is from God, who through Christ reconciled us to himself and gave us the ministry of reconciliation. So Paul goes, here's how God did it. He reconciled us to himself and gave us the ministry of reconciliation. And then he says it again. That is In Christ, God was reconciling the world to himself, not counting their trespasses against them, and entrusting to us the message of reconciliation. So how God brought about new creation is through reconciliation. Reconciliation is metaphor, which it makes sense for Paul to use this. He's talking about relationships being put back together with the Corinthian church, so he uses a relational metaphor. Reconciliation is this— When you have a fight with a friend or a spouse or a boyfriend, girlfriend, family member, when something comes into your relationship that gets in the way that has to be removed or dealt with or the relationship can't continue, you need reconciliation. It's the process where that thing needs to be removed for relationship to continue on. Paul goes, God has removed what was in the way for me to have relationship with him so that we could be back together. And that was sin, trespasses, evil, wickedness. God had removed it. And two things he wants them to see, and I think we need to see. God is the initiator. He says, all this is from God. And then he says it again. That is in Christ God was reconciling. We cannot fool ourselves into thinking that anyone can move forward and begin the reconciliation process without God first doing something. God is the reconciler. If you were sitting in here and you feel the need of reconciliation with God, whether you follow the Lord and you're going, "Ah, I just had a rough couple of weeks, or you don't know the Lord at all. He has taken the first step. You don't need to take the first step. It's already taken. God is the reconciler. He's the one who moves forward, and he wants them to see this because of the next thing. God doesn't count what stood in between the relationship he doesn't count it. Does not count trespasses. And I. this made sense to me in a movie that I really love. I'll try to describe it for you guys the best I can. It's a movie called Warrior, and it's special to my heart because the movie Warrior is about two brothers come from a pretty broken family. And they find themselves in the same fighting tournament where they're going to do a UFC tournament. And they aren't trying to compete against each other, but lo and behold, they find themselves in the finals together, and the next day, they have to go to the finals and fight each other, like brothers. I love the story because two things. It really speaks to my heart in that I grew up with all boys, all brothers in my house, and we were all wrestlers, and everybody got into MMA after high school, so love watching this. Just geek out on it. But the second part is their family, all the relationship, everything you're watching go down in this movie is really hard and broken because Like my family, so much of their nuclear and extended family had problems with alcohol and drugs that it just made the brother relationships really tough and the relationship with the father really tough. And so in one of the last scenes, Tommy, one of the brothers, is sitting down in the casino and his dad walks in trying to encourage him and Tommy just goes off. I'm so mad at you. I hate you. You abandon, just trying to get his heart out because he's hurting from what the father has done from a lifetime of alcoholism. Dad walks away. Next scene, you see Tommy walking in the open in the door, and you just hear screaming, and you see his dad drunk. He had relapsed. He'd actually been sober for about 10 years and because of that comment he relapsed and so he's in the room and there's bottles everywhere and he's crying and he's screaming and he's red faced and you can tell that he can't really know where he really is he's got like these little headphones on and trying to play these tapes and he's babbling and you can't understand him you can just hear things little regrets coming out of his mouth and things that he'd done to his sons that he's sorry for and he's just a mess and so what Tommy does is he grabs his dad he's like come here and he drags him into the hotel room and he puts him on the bed and he drags his dad into his lap. He takes away the bottle and he takes his arms and he folds his arms over his dad and he starts petting his head and he goes, shh. And you hear his dad, I did so much wrong to you guys. And he's like, shh, I love you, it's okay. That is Jesus. You see, Jesus on the cross was the very reconciling power of God the thing that stood in the way between us and God and always does until Jesus came is sin. It is that vile concoction, that vile cocktail that we drink down and it's our problem, but it's also the thing we go to because it's a solution for us and gives us momentary comfort and just keeps building into the problem. And Jesus drags us into his lap and he whispers, I love you, I'm not going to count it. I'm gonna care for you, you're mine, I love you. And in the hotel, God has sent Jesus into the hotel of the world to reconcile the world back to himself and he drags the world into his lap, each and every one of us, and he takes the bottle out of the hand, that sin and that death, and he whispers that he loves us and then Jesus drinks down the bottle himself to deal with it. What God has done is brought a new world because what got in the way of the old world being together with God was sin. And Jesus dealt with it. And it is dealt with today. Guys, it's dealt with today. You don't need a new start over. You don't need a new fresh year. You can look forward in this year knowing that for 2,000 years, it has been the new year. It has been the only new year, the only fresh start that you will ever need because Jesus has taken away everything that could ever get in the way between you and him sin. And he has taken upon himself. And Paul is telling that to the Corinthians to try to get them to understand a world has come that is new. You gotta see things new. God did it through reconciliation and now this means we need to be something new. And that's the next line. Therefore, we are ambassadors for Christ. God making his appeal through us. We implore you on behalf of Christ, be reconciled to God. So, Paul's telling this to the Corinthian church, and I think he's kind of got two audiences in mind. One, the people who have been refusing reconciliation. Two, the people who already know reconciliation, they're like, we're totally on your side, Paul. I think what Paul wants them to see is, if, you, if our God is the God of reconciliation, how could we not be reconcilers? Right? Right? if we are the very ambassadors of God, meaning when we step into a foreign nation and the nation goes, who do you represent? I represent the kingdom of God and that's the only representation that this worldly kingdom has of God. If the message of God is reconciliation, shouldn't our lives be dripping with reconciliation? I mean, what would this city look like if we were the first initiators of reconciliation? What, if it, what would it look like if when it came to the racial divide in our country that is tearing us apart, we were the initiators to find any and every means for reconciliation, starting with our lives and not looking to somebody else to figure it out first? What would it look like if our marriages were so dripping with reconciliation that when people looked on the outside into Christian marriages, they realized, man, it just seems like every time something comes up that's bad, it just gets taken away because you guys just swallow it down and reconcile. What if the political differences that are going crazy in our nation, we ended up being the initiators of relationship and parties and you send out the invitations and both sides of the Facebook divide are sitting at the table and everybody finds out, oh, you're the one who put this together. You brought everyone together. Huh. Why? Because my God did it for me. How could I not do it? How could I not be a reconciler if my God has done it for me? And I think that Paul says this to the second group of people. We implore you on behalf of Christ, be reconciled to God. It's for those who have not stepped into reconciliation yet. And I think there's those people in the church in Corinth, and there are people in there today, right now. I am begging you on behalf of God, just like Paul, be reconciled to God. It's already done. A new year has begun, but God has begun a new world so much longer ago and you don't need to do anything because God has already initiated reconciliation. If you are here and this was your resolution or you've been coming and you don't know where you're at with Jesus, just step into reconciliation. It's already extended for you. There's nothing in the way. There's no gap between you and God anymore. You can have that freedom. And the last line I think Paul says is not just a general statement but I think he's thinking about his own ministry. Verse 21. For our sake he made him to be sin who knew no sin so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. So Paul again is thinking about his ministry. Every time he preaches the gospel he gets beat up. Every time he does something and goes to a town he ends up poor. He's not looking good from worldly standards and he's trying to get Corinth to understand they need a new standard. And then I think about Paul probably, in a sense, is going like, what happens if I fail, and what happens if we fail? Like, we can, I included, can all say, I've not been the most aiming at being a reconciler in life for Jesus. If someone to say, you are an ambassador for Christ, that's like almost a shock to some of us, including me. It's like, that's a big calling. How could I live up to that calling? What happens when I still act like the old age is here? For Paul, he is the cross at his back and it's the thing he leans to. For our sake, he made him to be sin who knew no sin so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. Every shortcoming, every feeling that we have, everything, every time we come in here on Sunday and remember the last week, I didn't really act like an ambassador, much less a reconciler or representative for God's kingdom. Every time we fail and fall up short, we have the cross to prop us up. Because what Jesus has done is he has taken the sin and become it for our sake so that we might become the righteousness of God. And I think Paul had something very specifically in mind here because in Jewish tradition, once a year they had this ritual. I want you guys to imagine this. This is the last thing we'll talk about. (laughs) Every year to deal with the sin of God's people, they had something called the Day of Atonement. And so they would sacrifice a lamb, and they'd begin worshiping God. And at the end of this whole process, which was supposed to symbolize God has taken away the sin of his people, they brought a lamb out into the crowd. And they put their hands on the lamb. And everybody said, this lamb is sin. It is sin. It is our sin. And then they, like a crowd of crazy people, would chase the lamb into the wilderness and start partying. Because it's gone. It's been removed. The sin has been chased away. I want you guys to imagine something crazy because I really do think that when Paul is thinking of the cross at his back, propping him up and taking care of all of our shortcomings, gosh, what would it be like on the Mount Calvary before Jesus went up to the cross if all of us were there and we put our hands on Jesus? And all of us, over all creation, Christians who've been saved by Jesus, put our hands on Jesus in that moment and said, he is now our sin. He is in, And then we chase him up to the mountain to the cross. There is nothing holding us back from being the righteousness of God because 2,000 years ago, it was killed. And it resurrected new life in Jesus. So what would it look like for us to live into new creation today? Who are we withholding reconciliation from? What confessions do we need to make before God being assured of the cross? And what would it look like just to step out into that new year and just go, it's not just a new year, it's a new world. And I am a new creation in it. Would you guys pray with me? Oh, Father, I love you. I love your son. I thank you for your word for every man, woman, and child in here. Pray that by your grace and by your spirit, you might transform us and transform our eyes to see your new creation all around us, to see the world as it truly is. That you might, Lord, make us ambassadors imploring to the world to be reconciled on your behalf, to make us brand new, because you've done so in Jesus. May we send out into this world to be a light knowing that at our back our support our prop up is the cross and it's in your name we pray amen